You're listening to the Dietitian Cafe RDTV podcast, brought to you by Nualtra. My name is Neve Lillyman and I'm a second year student dietitian. Through this podcast, we aim to inspire student dietitians by sharing knowledge and gaining insight from experienced guests. I'd like to wish all our listeners a very happy new year. I'm really looking forward to supporting the student dietitian community with more exciting episodes in 2023. Today, we will be delving into the world of sports performance nutrition, which I know is a really interesting speciality to a lot of student dietitians. Whether it be football, rugby, tennis, the Olympics, the Paralympics, or even the sport or exercise we do at home, sport is all around us. So what is our role as dietitians in this space? Do we have one? Indeed we do. I'm very pleased to introduce our guest for today's episode, Richard Allison, a registered dietitian who has had a very exciting career in sports performance nutrition. Richard is highly specialist and has worked with some fantastic organisations. And today we will hear about his career and the advice he has to students wishing to work in this space. Okay, so without further ado, I'll hand you over to Richard to introduce himself. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Richard Allison. I'm a sports nutritionist and clinical dietitian, uh, currently working in elite sport and in a clinical setting with people with eating disorders. Lovely. Thank you for that introduction, um, Richard. Welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm really excited to learn more about your career. Um, before I do, I think it would be really interesting to learn about your decision to pursue dietetics um, and your experience as a student dietitian, really. Yes, my decision to study dietetics started when I was in the the Royal Marines and I noticed that there was a lot of focus on on training and how training is periodized, but there wasn't so much, if anything, in terms of focus on nutrition. It was basically calories in, calories out, and that was the only advice that we received at the time. Now, I'm sure that's changed now because this is 20-odd years ago, uh, but that's when I started to get really interested in there must be more to it than calories in, calories out, and that's what sparked my uh, interest into um, nutrition in general. Um, and I sort of decided from that point that I, I really wanted to do sports nutrition. I didn't know what that was at the time, but I, I knew that I wanted to work with, with athletes, um, or at least I thought I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so then come around 2004, I, I wrote letters and that might be showing my age as well, um, to every sporting organization that I could think of every Olympic team, every football team, every rugby team I could think of, uh, to see if I could get some work experience or, you know, that, that kind of thing. And fortunately, um, someone at British Cycling, um, one of my, still my mentor called Nigel Mitchell, picked up my letter, um, gave, I had a phone call with him and it was a brilliant phone call conversation. And he advised that actually I pursued dietetics first as that would put me in good stead. Now, this is, again, this is quite a while ago um, and there wasn't, you know, that, that um, body for, the SENR, which I'll probably talk to um, about in a bit, but there wasn't this sort of protected role of the sports nutritionist. So it was typically dietitians dietitians working in sport, or it was um, lecturers who were also, you know, occasionally doing consultants in sports teams. They didn't really exist. Um, So it was very good advice, which I still um, think was very good advice today, was to follow a career in in clinical dietetics first. Um, So to bring you to the second part of your question, I then enrolled at the University of Hertfordshire in their first ever dietetic program um, and went from, went from there. Lovely. So you went in, I mean, I, I'm sort of guessing, did you go, go in as kind of a mature student? Yes, yes, yeah. slightly mature. But to be frank, I think I was near the younger age range on my course. Yeah. There were It was mostly mature students, people who decided to take up dietetics as a, a second career. Mm. I think that's still the case now. I think a lot of people, they come from different walks of life. We've, I think in my cohort, we've got hairdressers, we've got people who work in care homes. Um, I used to work in business and finance, so we've got a load of people. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting how different careers kind of one way or another lead you to that. Um, it's interesting what you say about the Royal Marines, though, how it was all calories in versus calories out. Did you think that that was, I suppose there was there was something missing there that actually you know, I suppose British Army, yeah. that sort of thing could do with more of that sort of thing at the time. Yeah, well, not during uh, during training is about eight to nine months along and you're just, you know, focusing on the task at hand and not really giving it any sort of thought at the time. And, you know, at, at this point, it's sort of like, well, you're going to expend X 
thousand calories, maybe four or five calories today, lads, because you're doing this kind of activity. And so it was about, first of all, wow, that seems like a lot of calories to me. And then two, making sure that you're replenishing those calories and that's it. And it wasn't until um, we passed, I passed out of training and was at my unit that I really started to think about it a little bit more and sort of like retrospectively go, there's got to be more to it than just calories mm. in, calories out. And, you know, we're still exposed to sort of the nutritional fads, nutritional myths, you know, all fats are bad, carbs are bad, whatever sort of, you know, fad was there. There has to be more to it than this. And this is what sparked my interest. Mm. Oh, okay. That's quite interesting. I'd be, it'd be quite, um, quite interesting to see whether that's still the case now i mean i dare say it's probably not maybe there's more dietitians there but it would be interesting in, in sort of the defense of, of of the royal marines there that i know that the the meals that were provided there was nutritional advice that one of these were balanced meals but you know being a young royal marine recruit you're not thinking about those kind of things and it's more to say like my the way my thought process worked was the only thing i'm talking like those meals are already organized for you you're not giving that any thought all you're thinking about is i need to get in there and eat and then you know mm. the expression crack on to the next thing so it, it really wasn't registering my mind like say behind the scenes i know there was more to it than that and perhaps even now maybe there's more education that's provided to the recruits perhaps pre and during training as well yeah it's interesting how that really kind of inspired you to to look into that more um I mean, since graduating, you've gained a lot of experience. You've worked with loads of organisations as a sports dietitian. Um, it would be really sort of great to hear sort of about your career story since graduating from Hertfordshire and, and the organisations you've worked at, really. Yeah, so upon graduating, uh, I went straight to do my master's in sports applied sports nutrition at Loughborough. Okay. And whilst I was there, I was fortunate enough to do some uh, volunteer work with DIS because DIS was is, was situated there and still is. Um, so I got to be able to do some volunteer work with some some Olympians. Um, at the same time, I was also able to um, get a part time role at Scottish Rugby Union, and by part time was sort of pre um, working from home for most people. So I'd only actually visit the site once a week because it was in Scotland and I was based in Loughborough. Um, and and so that was the start of, of my journey there and really getting involved in that high-end sport. And I, I look back at it with sort of um, almost how naive I was thinking, well, I'm a, I'm a clinical dietitian. I've got this, I've nearly got my master's in sports nutrition. I should be able to be employed anywhere, you know. Um, and that's sort of where my next step happened. With There was a, a role, uh, England rugby, that came up. And I applied for it thinking, I'm working at Scottish rugby. I've got this experience and everything I've just mentioned. And I didn't even get an interview and it, it knocked me back. Mm. And it just so happened that a, a friend of mine was like, um, I've got a potential role in Australia for you. Do you, do you fancy that? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to graduate in a few months. Let's let, let's go for this. And obviously you went through all the applying for work visas, all that um, bureaucracy, everything uh, went over there. And it so happened that this role didn't really a, appear um, or yeah, transpire into anything. So I was, I was there in Australia working visa, so I basically did various jobs which were quite good, allowed me to travel around Australia. And then I found a, a job that was advertised in Sydney, and I looked at the job description, and I was like, this job is absolutely perfect. It's exactly what I want. And I clicked on the link, and it was actually in, in Qatar. And Qatar had been awarded the World Cup um, about two weeks beforehand, not, oh, okay. not long before. So I was like, this is this is interesting. Said to my to my wife, we had no children at the time. She said, "Should we should we go and give this a go?" And she was like, "Yeah, let's go." Um, and then I stayed, went over there, um, and I could talk for a long time about what what that was like. But it was it was a tremendous experience. World class facilities, um, world class um, professionals there in terms of the doctors, the physios, the surgeons, the researchers. Um, and whilst I was there, I was able to do um, a IOC diploma in sports nutrition and my PhD. Um, on vitamin D whilst I was over there, as well as work with some very high-level international athletes. And then towards the end of that six-year period, um, and that, that place is called Aspatar or, or Aspire Academy, okay. um, um, Yeah, which, again, any of the listeners can can Google it. It's an incredible place in terms of its facilities. It's, it's second to none. Um, and then I was lucky enough to, as I was leaving Qatar, get a role with, with Arsenal Football Club. And that's what brought me back to the UK. Sounds really varied, really interesting. And it sounds like a lot of the opportunities, obviously 
based on your skill and experience already, but um, that yeah. networking and, and putting yourself out there is a big part of that. Absolutely. So the sort of the, some of the highlights that there are many from, from being at Aspatar was that, you know, there, there were, as, as I said, world-class professionals, but they were from all over the world. So your, your, your reach of, of sort of people to, to speak to and, you know, your colleagues and, and, and contacts and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I got a few trips to, to the States out of that and been to Australia again because of those contacts and things like that. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's a fairly small world um, sport and, and sports medicine mm-hmm. and sports dietetics. So you t- your paths tend to cross. Um, but it was also the the variety of athlete that I was working with. So part of what we did was run something called the National Sports Medicine Program, which basically covered every single sporting body within Qatar. Okay. And these would cover typical, well, for most people or most people would consider typical sports like football, et cetera, handball's big in that part of the world as it is in parts of Europe as well, those kind of big team sports. But they're also sort of um, more obscure sports as well or games. So you'd have table tennis, again, pop, more popular in other parts of the world. But the one which I'm getting to, which was a real standout, was when I was asked if I wanted to provide uh, dietetic advice to four grandmaster, grandmaster chess players. Ooh. Yes, and that was yeah. That was my reaction. Was right. I play a very little bit of chess in that I know the rules, um, but I don't know exactly what I can do or what impact I can have as a dietitian into um, grandmaster's chess. So I went there, and it was very interesting. It was a very interesting conversation, and and it appears that nutrition is actually a big part of chess. And so they explained it to me, and and the caveat is this is coming from them, not from me. Let's say I don't play chess was that in Grandmaster's Chess, these games can last up to, to eight hours or so. And oh, that within really? an eight-hour period, um, a single move can dictate the outcome of the game. And if there's a dip in concentration and you miss that particular move, it could therefore cost you, you know, cost you the match. So it was all about maintaining concentration as opposed to anything else. So uh-huh. not having dips in blood sugar. So we did blood um, sugar tests at blood glucose levels and so on and so forth. They also get drug tested because obviously there's certain drugs that can improve concentration and so on and so forth. So it's really, really serious and like I say, an eye-opening thing. And you know, this is a very, very, very small, singular sort of incident in my career, but it, it stands out as that one that was that was really different. I have to um, say, I mean, I always thought, I mean, coming into this podcast, I was thinking, okay, sports nutrition, we're talking about I don't know, maintain muscle mass, injury, recovery, all that sort of thing. I didn't even think about cognitive function and things like that. So that's quite interesting actually yeah and and that that part of cognitive function does play into um say for example with a major part of my role since being back in the uk is with professional football mm. and outside of sort of physical performance if, if you're into to football you you can sometimes see that sort of drop off in concentration yeah. towards the latter part of the second half and that's obviously something that you know sports nutrition in general has looked at trying to improve and uh, myself as a practitioner on the ground and others have looked to implement certain strategies, you know, to to try and prevent that from happening. So it does it does cross over into the team sports mm. as well. Yeah, it definitely sounds like there's much, much more detail to it than probably just the word says sports nutrition. There's mm. more, I suppose it's more of a holistic approach, isn't it? It's that that mental, emotional, physical all coming together and how the nutrition impacts it. So that sounds really, really quite diverse as a as a um speciality um you mentioned arsenal football club um that's probably something that's like a dream job for a lot of student dietitians um what was it like working with a premier league football team well it was it was first of all it was, it was amazing um mm. it is it is hard work and i don't think that would really surprise anyone and that will always depend on the nature of your role so when i first came into the club i had a more of a consultant uh, role where I would basically be in the training ground three days a week and then attend home matches and, and that was it mm. um, and towards the end of that season I had a conversation with my performance director who said we'd like you to come on you know full time uh, which I, uh, I agreed to and then that becomes all encompassing and, and your your life is dictated by by football and the football calendar, the training schedule and, and so on and so forth so it, it really is all encompassing as I've said and it is very uh, demanding on your time, mm. but at the same time, it's very rewarding. It's great to be part of that uh, a team, especially when you've got good people around you, which I did, both in terms of players, um, coaching staff, and you know the performance team as well. And that was the really wonderful thing about that role is the 
the head of performance is a, a guy who's recently left Arsenal called Shad Forsyth. His model for the performance team was that we could all do, all our roles would overlap slightly. Yes. So that if, for example, I wasn't there, those key messages in terms of nutrition could be reiterated by uh, a physio, a sports scientist and vice versa. So if the sports scientist wasn't there or overloaded with work, then part of my role would be able to do the GPS units. Now, I imagine that for some of the, the listeners, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. For those that don't, in professional football and professional rugby, um, most of the teams use a, a GPS unit, which is provided by from Stat Sports, And this is worn during training and matches and allows us to um, see how far players run, how fast they've run, their de-accelerations, de their accelerations, about 16 different metrics. And where they'll bring that back into nutrition is that's very useful in terms of understanding a player's load, which then we can use nutrition and recovery to obviously offset if they've had a harder match than perhaps they normally would and so on and so forth. So we use that data from a nutritional point of view to yeah, manipulate their dietary intake where appropriate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite interesting you said about kind of that overlap and everyone can kind of see it and different professionals can use that in different ways. Um, I know in when we're training, we're taught a lot about sort of MDTs and in an NHS setting. Did you find that there was, um, that you were kind of doing a similar sort of thing when you were working with Arsenal and kind of uh, working with other health professionals a lot and working in a team? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it, it may look slightly different to to an NHS yeah. um, MDT, but in, in some ways it would look very similar. There would be um, a, a doctor there, a physician, uh, a physiotherapist, um, an SNC coach or strength and conditioning coach, or maybe, uh, you know, multiple of these of these roles, um, a physiotherapist, um, a masseur as well. And let's say we'd then obviously look at each player in, in case of what we were doing, we were having those MDTs on a daily basis and highlighting anyone that we thought was, you know, at risk. Um, and obviously in terms of professional sport, you often get unfortunately injured players as well. So they tend to get more of that, that time because we're trying to obviously get them back to, to training and then return to play. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a very similar approach. Yeah. I suppose that kind of um, reiterates that no matter where you work, um in dietetics that that, that teamwork is, is really important in understanding the role of other people um other professionals sorry um definitely to to use that skill set um do you do you find because you said about the football calendar um and how you were very much sort of I suppose tied to that in terms of your, your workload and things like that would you say I mean for example let's say someone was interested in sports nutrition but they weren't they're interested in sport but they weren't mad about football they weren't a mad football fan do you think someone like that could still do a job like that or do you think the passion for the sport needs to be there that particular sport yeah it's, it's a good question I think with my experience of, of other um, nutritionists and sports dietitians as well that often you can go into a sport maybe being indifferent and then mm -hmm. learn to actually really sort of get passionate about the sport. But I think what happens more from, from my personal experience is that you really become um, enthusiastic about the people you're working with. Yeah. So it, it's the players that you're working with. So it, it would almost, regardless of the sport, it's if they're personable and so on and so forth, that you've, you're building a relationship with that player. Mm. And I think that's really important because that's how you get to understand them better, their idiosyncrasies, their preferences, those kind of things. Um, and, and so you get to be almost a supporter of, of the people. So I think, you know, for me, it was easy. But I think from from if I worked in another sport, I could quite easily do that because I would, you know, attempt to build that relationship with the athlete. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the workload that you did with the athletes then, was that a lot of individual-based work, kind of that consultation? Or did you do more, a lot of sort of group presentations, things like that? How What did the workload yeah. look like? I don't know how much I should probably say with this one. Um, so whilst I was there, I worked under three, well, four managers in total, and they had different views on on group presentations. So that would change depending on the manager. And I mean, they all have their own opinion on on nutrition, pretty much generally. Generally, anyway, um, the majority of the work would be individual consultations. But then, what I found, and others um, have found as well, that you get a lot of impact from corridor conversations. And this okay. is where um, being there all the time is very useful because if you have 
let's say like the classic consultant role where you're in one day or two days a week. That's great. You can have those sit down consultations. You can, you know, start to learn about the player. But if you're there all the time and a player walks past you in the corridor and says, ah, Richard, I've got a question about this. You can address it there and Mm -hmm. then you build a better relationship and with the player, you also become more familiar with them. Um, Part of my role, I would also do, Uh, recovery runs with some of the players as well when they were returning to play so this means i'd be with the player for sort of 15 20 minutes just doing laps of the pitch um at a low intensity so we could maintain or have a conversation and that was a good way of building that relationship so yes you have the 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 typical clinical consultation environment but also those soft touch points really really valuable because you get to you get a lot of information from those as well Yeah, it sounds like a lot of the role, whichever, whether it's group or individual or the runs around the pitch, that a lot of it is based on sort of building that rapport with with the client, I suppose. Um, In terms of like the specific skills that you, you know, that you used um, or experience, actually, what skills and experience did you find were most important to kind of get this role, but also succeed in it so you could build rapport with the... the... To to be transparent, I think in terms of the the list of qualifications and attributes that you have to get the role, you're not going to use all of those all of the Mm -hmm. time. Um, And that's the thing, but it's obviously good to have those things if you need to. So for example, on the the job description was that I had to be proficient using a a DEXA scanner in terms of body composition and and bone mineral Mm -hmm. density. And at that point in my career, I think I'd I'd scanned over 500 different athletes using a oh, wow. scanner because I'd done my you know, qualification guide. So that was an important part. Now that's an easy thing to do. And that's just, you know, having the opportunity to um, be signed off to use the DEXA. And then it is, is very simple. It is really most of the time, just a few clicks of a button, then explaining the body composition to the player. So there's all those kind of things. And then being, um, Isaac proficient as well. So in terms of king out, king out the pometry, there's obviously the sports nutrition, um, specifics in terms of master's degree, IOC diploma, so on and so forth. Um, a PhD is very helpful, not essential, I would say. Um, but the real sort of skill, and, and I think this is something, to be honest, I learned a little bit later, having been on both sides of that interview table multiple times, is mm-hmm. that it doesn't always matter about all of the qualifications you have. It's whether you're the right fit for the role or not. Mm-hmm. So I'd say I've been on both sides of the table where I've interviewed people for a role at Arsenal, for example, who were in sort of a, um, a, a layman's term would have been overqualified. I don't like that expression myself because yeah. you know, you've decided to come and interview for that role, but very well qualified people mm-hmm. who didn't get the role because somebody else was a better fit. And I know that that's happened to me on the other side of that interview table as well. So it's about being the right fit for that role. And in terms of the skill or the attribute that I think was most valuable is almost being a salesman in terms of what we're learning, what you learn at university, what you learn in in terms of your your external reading, everything that that's fantastic. And again, naively at the beginning of my career, I thought, well, I've got all this knowledge. The athlete's going to be so happy to learn all this knowledge from me. And I'll be able to tell them all about carbohydrate loading or periodization or whatever the the subject might be. But then you realize soon that people are people. um, And within a team, you're going to have 25 individuals with different cultural backgrounds, different beliefs. Everything's going to be different about them. You're you're very seldom going to find two people who are the same, just like you would in, in the real world. So they're not all going to want to listen to you anyway. Um, some of them are going to challenge you. Some of them are going to have different beliefs, as I said. Some people are going to have had advice from someone else that may now be outdated. Mm-hmm. With sport, there's a lot of superstition. There's a lot of habit. Um, you know, players that will put their left foot on the pitch first because they're superstitious. That same thing translates over to food. So, oh no, I always have to have a certain pre-match meal because oh, that's what I've always done. I'm superstitious about it. These little things. So it's about building that relationship and trying to sell the nutritional idea at the right level to that player. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the most useful tool to have because it's all very well having, you know, you can have all the knowledge in terms of clinical dietetics, dietetics and sports nutrition. But if you can't get the 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 athlete or the player to adhere to it, it's not much use. So that's the thing. It's that that transition from knowledge to well, knowledge transfer really. Mm. And it, it sounds like a big part of that is the ability to, build rapport with that 
that player. So if it's someone, you know, you know, the player with the particular uh, superstition about food this pre-match meal it's it's being able to know that I suppose and if you know that you can work with that and that patient-centered approach that they always go back to so it sounds like it's more those I say soft skills I don't like that phrase either but that that skill of being able to build a relationship with people and having the confidence to do that would you, you say that you have to accept also that sometimes you're not going to win no, mm-hmm. sometimes there's not going to be no matter how you sell it, no matter the importance to it, you're just not going to win every battle. Um, yeah. And it's you know, a classic expression, but picking those battles, what are the priorities and focusing on those. And uh, unfortunately, um, a feeling that's reiterated by my colleagues is often we spend more time on the players that need less, should need less of our help, if that makes sense, in okay. terms of the, the players that are doing everything right and are perhaps the best performers will get less of your time than maybe the player that's, doesn't want to do it you know and they'll because mm. you're trying trying to convince them about something so yeah it's, it's often the case yeah that's interesting um that's that's quite interesting I didn't really think that about the that more building relationship skill as much I was thinking more along the lines of knowing all you know knowing all your stuff about your carb loading and everything like that so yeah that's quite interesting I think as well like um students because we get lectures on communication and teamwork and all those kind of softer skills um which a lot I think a lot of students think oh do we need to know that and it sounds like if you want to pursue this speciality that yes yes you do need to know that and you need to be able to 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 communicate properly and build relationships and do what works for the the I suppose the player in this circumstance but the patient or the client or whatever it is yeah and and I think that that's the overlap between patient and athlete is, is is good I mean patients are people athletes are people um maybe their their individual needs will be different um of course there would be if you're in a a clinical setting maybe in an intensive care situation or you know a a ward-based situation versus uh, an elite athlete but again we're all people um we'll all need to be spoken to in a particular way perhaps a very personal way and again very individualized way so i think it, it overlaps nicely yeah yeah, interesting. So you mentioned about the qualifications and obviously you said they're not the be all and end all. Um, but particularly one you mentioned earlier is the SCNR, I think I'm pronouncing that right, SCNR um, practitioner qualification. Um, could you give our listeners um, a bit of an overview of what that qualification is? Yeah, well, and of course they can um, they, they can Google it. So it's the Sports and Exercise Nutrition Register. Okay. And this was introduced, I think, around 2012, but I can be fact-checked on that. It was, it was a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And what this was, was, as mentioned, you know, for us as, as, as dietitians, that's a protected title. You know, we can be um, called to audit and everything else that, that goes along with that, you know, HCPC registration. But in terms of sports nutrition, it was wild west might be a bit of a, an extreme exaggeration but you know you, you could call yourself a nutritionist after doing a, a two-day course somewhere for example yeah. so this was introduced to basically um provide that register for for people who were qualified and could demonstrate that qualification uh demonstrate their competencies and so on and so forth very similar to the bda um but specific for sports nutrition and you don't have to be a dietitian now there's different um, entry levels. There's the there's the graduate level and there's the the um, professional level. So depending on on where you are in your career. So as a student, you can start to look towards that that mm-hmm. graduate registration if someone's interested in doing so. Um, and with this, you need to prove uh, competencies in terms of your basic scientific knowledge, your basic sports nutrition knowledge, and so on and so forth. And this can be done. I said that I won't spend too long on the the specifics because you can find that on on the website in terms of what you need to produce at what level. Um, and then it will be providing a, a case study and this case study will be peer reviewed and come back and you obviously make edit any necessary edits to that and then resubmit it. And if they're fine with all of your um, knowledge and competencies and that case studies, then you get put onto the, the sports um, exercise nutrition register. Okay. So what does that, um, what does that qualification mean for you as a dietitian working in sports nutrition? Well, it, it, it's very um, useful in terms of a, a lot, if not all of the, the roles within professional sport call for that SENR registration as part of the, the job description. 
um, because what it is is essentially like a kite mark of um, the the person that's applying. Now, I know there'll obviously be exceptions where people can be, well, well, I'm, I'm not on the SENR, but I'm eligible to be on it. So it could be, you know, that's down to, again, the individual, whether you're the right fit for the role, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but what it does mean is that I know that every single person on that register has achieved a certain standard of sports nutrition knowledge, mm. um, you know, competencies, et cetera, et cetera. So it just means that, it, you know, there's a minimum level that everyone's at when they're on that register, which is, is quite a high level, I must add, but it, mm. we're all at least a certain level. Okay, so that's quite good when it comes to applying for a job there. It's saying to someone, actually, I do have this level yeah. of competency, this certificate, um, rather than just based on me saying, oh, yeah, I've done this, I've done this, yeah. I promise. Um, is it? Would you recommend that all dietitians wishing to work in uh, sports performance nutrition, that they should get this SCNR qualification? Definitely look into it, yes. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and for, like I said, it, it's been obviously renewed mine but it's been a long time since i actually first went through all that that process so some of the the details may have changed so i would refer back to mm-hmm. to, to the website but yeah as as a dietitian as a qualified dietitian in my experience of of getting on the register you you jump a lot of those steps because you've already proven that by being a, a, a clinical dietitian um so i would definitely start if, if it was of interest to any of the listeners, I would start looking at that now and perhaps preparing um, a case study and all of the relevant documentation that's required to get on the register. Okay, so I'll leave that in the show notes and um, that website. Um, just sort of, did how did you do yours? Was it through kind of a, a university or was it um, just something you do in your own time or a short course or things like that? What, the, the SCNR? No, yeah, was, yeah no, you, you just applied directly to them. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, so it is something, it's kind of a little project you, you conduct, you know, for yeah. yourself really, and then submit and. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, so, so for me at this point, I think I was six years into being a, a, a clinical dietitian and a sports nutritionist. So most of those things I'd already, you know, um, ticked off the list anyway. So it was just a, a question of, of proving that I'd done those things. Oh, okay. So it's, that, that sounds quite good, especially if you, you want to ask, let's say work in the NHS for a bit or you know privately or whatever and then you can maybe do that later on if that's when you feel more confident to so that's that sounds like a, a good thing to have if this is yeah. the the area you want to be in yeah and it's one of those things that you'd say once once you've done it and then just keep keep on top of it keep renewing it and in terms of cost it I think it's it's relatively inexpensive as well just to be mm-hmm. on that register so it's it's definitely a worthwhile thing if you want to pursue a career in sport or keep mm-hmm definitely worth doing then um in terms of the organized organizations you've you you know you've worked out or that you currently work at um you know generally speaking what sort of clients do you see within that that sports sort of field um generally like common conditions or problems that that you see so most of my role at the moment is spent with either um tottenham women's team or within my own clinical practice in in London, and and within the clinical practice in London, I'll see quite a few um, athletes or exercise enthusiasts with the condition of of Reds or relative energy deficiency syndrome. But that's kind of where I, I get because I see some of those patients that I get referred more. So I've got a sort of uh, a user bias, if if you like, uh, referral bias. But it could be anything from you know weight loss, muscle mass gain, wanting to improve their marathon time, wanting to improve their Ironman time, wanting to be stronger. You know, it, it could be a whole list of, of things, but also more sort of clinical uh, conditions, GI distress, et cetera, diabetes sometimes. So yeah, it's, it's often an overlap between someone with a clinical condition who wants to participate in sport. Or okay. Uh, it's, you said before, didn't you? You said athletes are... Uh, are humans aren't they so it makes sense I suppose that they're not just coming to you for sport they're coming to you for actual health problems because everyone's got and what you often find is that um, a lot of the non-professional athletes train um, in terms of load either the same or even more than than some of the athletes so you know I'll often see people who are you know we we call them I don't know this is a drug term but we call them city triathletes so these are tend to be men and women working in the city, high-powered jobs, um, whether they're financial or et cetera, but they're really into either triathlon or Ironman, and they spend 
you know, their spare time training and, you know, have huge training blocks at the weekend, very competitive. Um, and so their training loads might, as I said, be well in excess of, of those of, say, uh, a professional footballer, for example. Mm. And now obviously they're, they're different sports, but it, just because they're not a professional doesn't mean that their training loads aren't quite high. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, what's Ironman? I feel like I've heard that before. Ironman is, is a, a longer distance triathlon. Okay. So to, to put it in perspective, you finish by running a marathon. Ooh. So, yeah. So they're, they're quite, yeah, that's a quite an intense sort of dedication. You know, talking probably a, a good 11, 12 hours for, for most of the, the people that I work with to complete an Ironman. Oh, wow. My gosh, that's a lot of dedication then, isn't it? All that training and got to get the nutrition right for that to exactly. finish that in the first place, haven't you? Um, do you, because you said a lot about the uh, gastro, weight management, diabetes. Um, obviously, it sounds quite clear that having an understanding of those you know, specialities as, as well is quite key. Um, is this where, because you said about a lot of them work part-time as sports nutritionists, is this where that other experience comes from, do you think? in those other areas and like the other time they're working yeah so so in terms of you know uh, i'm not sure if i've completely understood the the question but i'll try and answer it and you can correct me if I'm oh wrong, yeah okay sorry i probably where, worked a bit weird this, this is where i mentioned at the very beginning where the advice i was given to be a dietitian even though i wanted to follow a career in sport has has, has paid dividends because right if I wasn't a clinical dietitian and I was working in elite sport and there were some of those conditions in the athletes, I would potentially have to refer to a dietitian, um, which right. is ideal. So in, in terms of being a clinical dietitian that I can, you know, help treat those conditions in those athletes and, you know, exercise enthusiasts as if they were, you know, a clinical patient in a hospital, but also or say an outpatient setting or and or you know that overlap between what impact does that have in performance so as perhaps an example if we're looking at someone who has uh say competing in a in a a triathlon or an ironman event you know fueling on the bike is a really important part of that because this is a time when obviously you're able to take that fuel on board doing it Mm. while swimming is virtually impossible and run is a little bit more difficult so the bike's an important time and often this will be with you know sports drinks or sports gels etc and we'll often get people who can't tolerate those very well mm. and GI distress from those, yeah. or they already have a GI distress, but they have for whatever reason decided that the gel is something that they have to have on the bike, which makes sense in terms of fueling. And then it's like working out what is the best method to work with that person in terms of either their existing GI distress and the intake of those um, sports foods or sports supplements, or if that sports supplement is actually causing the GI distress. So it's mm. kind of, one example of, of of where that sort of overlap occurs mm. sounds like being a dietitian in this space is is good to have that that knowledge bank all in all in one place or with one person and it keeps that process quick rather than having to refer on and go yeah. to different professionals so sounds like dietitians are very needed in this space um so you in between your sports nutrition work so you also work as an eating disorder dietitian in the nhs um so do you find this links to sports nutrition a lot as well is there an overlap there um definitely in terms Mm. of there are athletes uh, have disordered eating yeah a lot of athletes would have disordered eating by its definition um there is definitely an overlap between sort of um eating disorders as well so i do actually work with some athletes professional athletes who have clinically diagnosed eating disorders as well okay um, and so that there's an overlap that way and then to bring the sports side back into um eating disorders i work with a lot of, of of young people with eating disorders which i find very rewarding and a lot of those are um very high level um athletes for their age you know so you'll find mm-hmm. Not all of them, of course, but some of them are, you know, very good runners for their age or very good gymnasts for their age. And, and so there is a definite overlap. And I've found not all of the time, but it often helps that I can bring it from a, I'm not just bringing it from an eating disorders dietitian point of view, I'm bringing it from a sports point of view. So we can use mm-hmm. that sort of uh, multi-pronged approach in terms of, look, we're trying to help you not just to improve or maintain your health. We're also looking at it from a can we also improve your sporting performance point? Now, obviously that's very complex, individualized and so on, but it, it does prove um, 
very useful from time to time to be able to draw on both of those um, experiences and, and that overlap between the two roles. Mm. I mean, there's not a lot. I mean, I could be wrong, actually, but um, am I right in thinking there's not kind of a sports nutrition specialist dietitian kind of role within the NHS? Because it not no, I don't think there is. Okay. Not, uh, and I'm happy to be corrected. And, and, um, yeah, I was going to say I've I've yeah. never heard of it, but um, do you think that possibly there should there should be in the future that that would be a good place for the NHS that that dietetics to go is to to get that training in sports if you know if you're seeing a lot of eating disorder patients who, who do lots of sports or athletes do you think it's worth that the nhs looks at more sports nutrition training maybe on the side i think it could be very useful in terms of the training and then also the the application of that mm. so to my knowledge and i'm quite happy to be corrected um you know and i've looked into this myself of whether there is an avenue for an nhs sports nutrition clinic or a sports dietetic clinic because at the moment again to my knowledge, this is all um, private or, you know, some insurance companies may cover it, but it's not under the NHS as such. Um, and I think that as people get more and more active, um, we saw a lot of this around COVID lockdowns as well, people doing, um, you know, fear of gaining weight and doing a lot more exercise than they they had before, the growing in popularity of certain sports as well, that this is something that, you know, people should be able to um you know, a, a service that it should be available for everyone. You know, so mm. again, my my view might be slightly skewed. I'm working in a in a in a cl private clinic in London, and and so as I mentioned, a lot of our um, clients are those you know people working in the city or what have you, and and they see that it's an important part of what they want to do, and therefore it's, yeah. the cost is not. But if if you're a person that maybe doesn't have that disposable income, which is obviously applicable for a lot of us at the moment. Um, with cost of living crisis or whatever you want to label it as that you know we may be biased in being dietitians that we see food as being really important um yeah and it's people being able to prioritize that and it would be nice if there was a you know an nhs funded version of that so that you know the person that cannot afford to go private can actually go yeah actually i need some general sports nutrition advice and which brings me into to another part of that there's obviously quite a lot of or you know, a significant amount of information on the internet about these things. And it's often difficult to know whether that's genuine information, yeah. whether it's, you know, nonsensical or whether there's the overlap between the two as well, because obviously I see a lot of individuals as well as teams and within the team, even you have those individual people who respond differently to, you know, the same regimens or the same modalities. So it's about being able to contextualize that into an individual approach. So what works for me might not work for you, even though that advice is is genuine and, and backed by science. It yeah. might not be advice. So, and and often we find there's a lot of trial and error of this. You know, people will come in and say, "I've tried X, Y, and Z. This isn't working for me, but it worked for my friend or my colleague. Why doesn't it work for me?" And so on. Yeah, it it definitely sounds like that should be something in the future that that should be available in the NHS because, as you say, athletes are humans as well and not all athletes or sports people are uh, have disposable income either but it, it, it is it's people's health at the end of the day isn't it so it sounds like that should be something for the NHS to to possibly grow into um obviously we said the NHS maybe not as much at the moment um what other settings do you know of that that sports dietitians often work in so you know you've got the the major sort of um body within the uk which is the english institute of sport you've also got the scottish institute of sport as well so you've got these these major institutes where they'll have sports nutritionists and sports dietitians working and this is primarily with olympic sports so this could be anything from rowing cycling sailing etc um so they're they're obviously big um governing bodies that, that people can work in um there's also obviously we've, we've mentioned football that there's rugby any of those major sports but as you go down to the leagues the um funding for these roles is less so you find that a lot of people have multiple roles in different spheres to to you know supplement their income or so that they have you know a full to work for example you might get a role within the eis might that might be one day a week working with with sailing and therefore you've got you know the remainder of the week to fill the gap or vice versa mm. um and so there, there's there's governing bodies there's the major sort of sports as well and and then there's the the clinical private clinical setting as well. 
Okay, so it still sounds quite varied. Um, I think it was it in in what was it English Institute? Was it? Yeah, EIS English Institute of Sport. EIS, yeah. I think that will definitely be something for students to go and look into. Um, I think it leads me on to the next question. Really, sports nutrition. I think it's a field that a lot of students want to pursue or are really interested in, um, but don't really get that exposure to it or experience during clinical placements. Um. How or where would you recommend that students kind of gain some experience if they can or some insight into sports nutrition? Yeah, so in, in terms of, of gaining experience, that's, um, you know, it, it can be tricky. There's no no denying that. And often it often relies on a, on a chance, you know, that you, you might have to reach out or do reach out to, to a team or a, a clinician. And, and if there's available space, um, you know, that they can bring you on board, even if it's, you know, for a few weeks that, you know, gain some experience of working in that setting. Um, it's almost like if you were to present for a first time on a stage, it's always good to have walked on the stage first to experience mm. what that's like. And that's sort of uh, an analogy of if the first time your, your environment, or the first time you're exposed to the environment of working elite sport is working into a, walking into a first team dressing room, full of 25 people who are shouting and making lots of noise that that might throw you off your, your, your game could put you off. So even gaining mm-hmm. that kind of experience helps. Um, so it's, it's a lot of reaching out to people. Um, I would say probably the most effective way of doing this. Um, and again, I'm quite happy to be corrected if there are other ways, but is a number of the master's programs across the UK now offer work experience with elite teams as part of that qualification. Right. So, so that, you know, there are any numbers of universities out there that have um, master's degrees in sports nutrition, which one is helpful because you're gaining that additional qualification. Yeah. So you can you can get either a placement into a uh, professional sports team or occasionally a PhD into, um, you know, a sports team as well, which is often is quite commonplace now. Whereas... Yeah. You know, that that wasn't maybe 10 years ago, there wouldn't have been so many people doing their PhDs and say Team Sky Cycling or, or Leicester Tigers rugby team. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, So it sounds like the main routes is looking at those those extra qualifications and doing what, I mean, you said at the very start, didn't you, that that's where you started was emailing, sending letters or whatever it was to multiple different teams and 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 or just sports institutes or whatever it is and just trying to build those networks and and get your name out there i suppose yeah and sort of then to again add to that in terms of the reality is often um it would not be down to the sports dietitian to make that call there's often a lot of legislation insurance and these kind of things of having you know additional people on site and all of that really sort of boring stuff that can often um provide additional hurdles for this so that's why i would suggest you know definitely reach out to people always reach out to people but in terms of that sort of if you're going through that master's university program those hurdles have already been removed they're established pathways in terms of getting that exposure but you Mm. know there's an element of fortune or luck with this that you might just as you know as as i did you might just send the right email to the right person at the right time and they'll be like yeah actually i'm looking for someone to help me out for a few weeks or or whatever it might look like so yeah there's there's that as well yeah can but try I suppose you just you, you try and see where you get with it. You know, you never might might get some luck. Um, or yeah, so that sounds good. And um, definitely about the master's programs as well. Um, it will be a key one for a lot of students because a lot of students do masters. I think they ask for masters a lot more now, don't they? So definitely good to look into. Um, do you feel that in the future there'll be more space for dietitians in sport? I do hope so. Um, I genuinely think what we're seeing in Say, for example, if I talk to to women's football in the WSL, we're seeing that that grow. Um, it almost feels weekly that it that it's improving um, in terms of you know funding its popularity. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll speak to it, it, you know, in the truth that it needs to be is that it's mostly about money. You know, if, if the more money that a uh, a sport has or a league has, the more options there are for sports nutrition, sports dietetics, for example. So. You know, it, it's all very well and good and say, well, I'll, I could go and volunteer for a team, but that's obviously not going to uh, provide you a career. Um, whereas, as this as the sport grows, the funding grows, there are going to be more of these positions available, and, and you know, they're 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 warranted. You know, it's um, it, there is a, a an absolute 
essential need for sports nutrition and sports dietetic within you know the WSL so yeah that, that's definitely going to grow as far as I can see yeah it's interesting with sort of the rise of women's football and I imagine sort of after their victory last year um that there'll be more more sports hopefully taking that that stance as well so um yeah definitely sounds promising um sounds promising and the students wanting to have some have something to um aspire to I think um so the last question then is what is one thing you wish you'd known as a student dietitian um, about working as a sports dietitian and what advice would you give to our future sports dietitians? I think you would come back to a point I made earlier and that really focusing on the the soft skills, really yeah. working on um, presentation skills, you know, looking at that as you would do any other skill, like, you know, um, establishing where you are, what, where you want to get to, what are the steps you need to to do to get to there? Um, you know, I, I'm thinking just in terms of, of presentation skills, I remember being very nervous a number of the first presentations that, that I gave, you know, even, even to the point of having um, shaky legs. And I was like, this is, this is silly. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going up there to convey information, but I'm all I want to do is get up there, say what I've got to say and get off as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's not what I'm there to do. I'm there. If you like, they haven't paid to come and see me, but let's say they have, you know, they have, they're there because they need the information or, want the information for me and it's my due diligence to do that to the best of my ability so uh myself and a few of my colleagues actually put together sort of um cpd courses on how to give presentations where we had experts come in and and give advice on how to give presentations and so on and so forth and with that and experience i then got much better at giving presentations a lot more confident you know and now i can give i you know late last year I gave a presentation to 2000 people and it's fine you know whereas if you told me that when I was a student dietitian I'd just be like nope nope no. <laughs> so um so that's an example. but with that example I mean in terms of those soft skills as well in terms of in terms of the being the, the salesperson in terms of being able to you know it's not enough just to have the knowledge in fact it's it, having the knowledge and not being able to transfer it is almost pointless yeah um, and then the last bit would I think I took myself too seriously at certain points. I think that's really important to, you know, not take yourself too seriously, but at the same time, be confident in, in delivering that information, which brings me back to that sort of presentation skills kind of thing, you know, that, um, you know, you know, it depends on your athlete, as we've mentioned quite a lot throughout this podcast, athletes and people are all different. They'll have different ways of doing it. Some will want a bit of a sense of humor where we deliver things. Some of them might not, you know, um, I would say more the former, you know, the, uh, being lighthearted. Um, but I actually got told on a couple of occasions that I was too serious for a role. I didn't get roles because I was too serious. Now, I don't know if that's genuinely true, but when I look back, I was like, yeah, you were, you were pretty serious. And, you know, it's, 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 you, you've got to sort of break that that ice and, and build a relationship, as we've mentioned. So, you know, not taking yourself too seriously, learning those soft skills and learning to be confident with those skills. Just um, on that, be- I was just going to say, just on that then, would you say that being able, I suppose in this um, speciality, being able to take, I don't want to say criticism, but criticism and feedback well, is that something that you, is a, a, a skill you think you've developed or quality? Yeah, definitely um and and getting challenged as well um you know uh, being able to to answer qu- the why questions quite a lot yeah. also being able to deflect the the nonsense um questions and this is a genuine thing i heard and it sounds like an interview question um i think i may have had it as an interview question at some point was i, I once worked with a um, professional footballer who used to be at barcelona at the same time as messi and I was having a conversation with him and a, and a few other small small group uh, presentation. And he turned around and said, "Well, Messi eats pizza. Why can't we eat pizza?" And it's it's this you know that the, how you how you respond to that and how you deal with that you know. And I don't know if that's true or not, but obviously it's it was a question that he was sort of like, "No, well, I don't need to do this." And alongside that, which is a, a almost a cliche now, is I've always done it this way. I've got this far. Why do I need your help? which again is a, a classic thing when working in, in elite sport. Yeah. That's something we get told a lot in placement is that um, 
sorry, now that was the last question, but you got me onto something else now. In placement, um, you know, you're always asked to justify why you're doing something and mm. they'll challenge you and sometimes they'll purposefully put you on the spot. I know I had that a few times and I was like, ooh. Um, and having that practice to have confidence, um, but being able to take a little bit of criticism and feedback. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think I would not have said that, um, but it's definitely, definitely something to 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 work on. And let's say building that, whether you want to call it like a, a thicker skin, but maybe a sense of humor with it as well. And 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 perhaps not take it too personally that, that someone's, you know, you might even see it as you being attacked, um, you know, and, and there may be an element, element of truth in terms of that, that feedback. And there might not be, and that's just being able to, to deal with that and process it accordingly. And I think in terms of one last sort of bit from my side, in terms of what I found very useful about being a dietitian is the reflective practice that you taught as a student always comes back to reflection doesn't it i yeah I, I find it very i find it very very useful you know in in those sort of scenarios that we've just literally discussed the reflective practice is is very useful and sort of like well actually what can i take home from that you know criticism feedback critique whatever it is um and yeah so it's very very useful and also with that that um standard of documentation that you're taught as a student dietitian is is wonderful when you bring that into the elite sporting world as well because obviously you still have to record those interactions and, and do that accordingly so that people can obviously look back at your you know your, your records as and when required those lectures aren't a waste of time then they're worth going to yeah it's all yeah I, I, you know and i think that's that's key I, I mean i can't speak to to every dietetic course because obviously i know i did the one but um <laughs> You know, all of those things are very useful. And I think I didn't realize how important they were at the time. I obviously, it obviously went in and I took it on board. And it wasn't until I got out there in the real world, I was like, oh, these are really useful. You know, these are, mm. these are in, in every environment. This isn't just, you know, being a, a student dietitian at Addenbrooke's and having to document everything. This is really useful. I'm going to use this in every single role that I have. Mm. Lovely. Well, thank you for sharing such valuable advice. Um, that brings us to the end of our chat about sports nutrition. Um, thank you so much for your time, Richard. Um, it's been really valuable to hear your experiences um, and I'm sure you'll have inspired a lot of student dietitians um, today. So now I will hand our listeners over to Meg, who has got some fantastic info to go all about sports nutrition. Thanks, Neve. Hi, everyone, and welcome to info to go I'm Meg. And in this bite-sized segment, I aim to engage with you, our listeners and fellow RDGBs to share ideas, experiences and questions relating to all aspects of being a student dietitian. I'll also be sharing some tools and resources with you so that you can go on to further develop your knowledge after listening to the podcast and keep up with your continued professional development. In the last month's episode, I asked you what you do to look after your mental health and manage stress when studying, on placement or during exam season. I will be sharing your responses in the next episode of the podcast, so there's still time to share your top tips for looking after your mental health and managing stress at university. All you need to do is email newultrapodcast at hrscommunications.com or send us a DM on the New Ultra Instagram page. Happy New Year, everyone. At the start of a new year, many people like to focus on creating new habits and setting goals for themselves, which for many involves weight loss. This means it's also a time that many new diet trends start popping up, and can, which can be unhealthy or unsustainable. Some of the fad diet trends that I've noticed cropping up are, first, the egg diet. This is a diet that involves only mainly eating eggs or lean protein at every meal along with low carb vegetables. This diet can be very restrictive and its focus on a single food group is probably what makes it most concerning. Another one I've noticed is the military diet. This is a three day, very low calorie diet that promises to help you lose 10 pounds in a week. This diet is highly restrictive and its promises of significant weight loss in such a short time period is what makes its long term sustainability quite questionable. Another one I've noticed are juice detoxes or juice diets. These involve only drinking juice for up to a week. And although they may lead to a quick weight loss, its highly restrictive nature does not promote healthy, sustainable habits. And consuming all foods in a juice form means missing out on some important nutrients such as fiber. 
Have you noticed any new diet trends recently or seen any advertisements that are not evidence-based? Some immediate red flags that something might be a fad diet could be promises of rapid weight loss. The BDA suggests that anything over one kilogram of body fat loss in a week is likely to be a fad. Do they suggest avoiding entire food groups or only eating one type of food? They might promise a magic way to lose weight without having to change any part of your lifestyle, for example, diet pills. Or they might make health claims without any scientific evidence. The BDA is encouraging everyone to call out misinformation when you see it. And as RDGBs, it's important that we help to raise awareness of potentially dangerous messages online and instead promote positive ones. If you'd like to learn more about fad diets and how you can call out misinformation, I'll link some useful BDA articles and fact sheets in the show notes which, if you want to get involved. This month's follow recommendations. I'll start with today's guest, Richard, who you can find on Instagram at Richard Allison Nutrition, and you can see what he's getting up to. Some other sports dietitians that share some useful recipe ideas and information on how to properly fuel your body for exercise are Taryn at Dietitian Approved, Rose at Dietitian Rose, and Janide at Janide underscore Dietitian, all on Instagram. You can also find Makari, a registered sports nutritionist and fellow RD2B at Makari underscore sports nutrition on Instagram, where she shares useful information and tips related to sports nutrition. Some CBD opportunities for this month. The BDA website is a great source to find insights into different career paths within dietetics, as they regularly share stories from dietitians working in different fields in their BDA blog section. On their blogs, they also share a number of stories from different sports dietitians, which can give you a range of perspectives of what you may face as a sports dietitian. So I would definitely give some of them a read if you've been inspired by today's episode and think that sports nutrition might be an area that you're interested in. I particularly enjoyed reading the article about how sports dietitian James Moran ensured appropriate nutrition was provided to Kevin Sinfield when he was running the seven ultramarathons in seven days to raise awareness of MND. As it was an event that I'd seen documented on TV, I hadn't even appreciated the involvement that dietitians had behind the scenes to make it it possible. So I thought that was a great insight in that blog. In order to become a registered sports and exercise dietitian or nutritionist, you'll need to complete an accredited SENR course. The BDA has a full list of these courses on their website, so I will put a link link to that page in the show notes for anyone interested in further education in the area of sports and exercise nutrition. If you are interested in a career as a sports dietitian, then you can already start to gain some experience that might help you in the future. Some things that you can do might be to join a sports team at your university, and if possible, take on a role of responsibility within the team. Although you won't be able to offer dietetic advice to the team yet, having experience or being involved in helping out a sports team will allow you to transfer those skills in the future. Another thing that you can do is if you're shadowing or you can have some voluntary opportunities in your local area, or even reach out to some sports dietitians or nutritionists online to learn what their experiences are, it's a great way of sharing initiative and gaining some insight into the area of sports nutrition. Coming up in the next month, the 2nd of February is, a, is Time to Talk Day. This day is run by charities, Mind and Rethink Mental Illness, and is all about encouraging conversations around mental health and bringing communities together to support each other. The Time to Talk website, which I will link in the show notes, has some great tips on how you can broach the topic of mental health with someone and share ideas on how you can raise awareness of Time to Talk Day. One easy way of getting involved is by sharing the hashtag Time to Talk on social media or sharing one of the downloadable resources that they offer on their website. Both the Mind and Rethink Mental Illness websites are also great resources for learning more about the different mental health problems that you may come across and what support there is available to people. So I'll also be linking the websites to those in the show notes. On the 4th of February, it's World Cancer Day which is led by the Union of International Cancer Control and aims to improve the awareness and education of cancer. This year's theme is all about closing the care gap 
and celebrating the progress that has been made to allow people to seek and receive treatment. The World Cancer Day website, which I will link in the show notes, is also a really valuable resource to find out more about cancer and the key issues that surround it. So it's definitely worth checking out and getting involved in. For more information about anything that I've mentioned today, please check out the show notes. If you know of any exciting CPD opportunities for students that are coming up or are getting involved in any of the activities that I've mentioned, then I would love to hear from you and you can drop me an email at newultrapodcast at hrscommunications.com. And that's all the info to go for today's episode. So I'll hand back over to Neve in the main cafe. Thanks, Meg. I'm sure a lot of listeners will find your advice and resources really beneficial. I would like to say a huge thank you once again to New Ultra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Dietitian Cafe RDTV podcast, consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more RDTBs. You can also follow New Ultra on social media at New Ultra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon.